0: Welcome to The Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast exploring the most critical challenges for venture-backed tech entrepreneurs along the startup, grow-up, and scale-up journey. Every two weeks, we speak to founders, experts, and venture capitalists from around the world about their experiences. And hello, we are back on The Pain of Scale with Stephen. We haven't seen you since June, for those who are listening live. How are you, Stephen?
1: Yeah, I'm good. I'm looking forward to starting off with a new series with a fascinating episode, I think.
0: Yes, a fascinating episode. Actually, I want to hear all about it. So can you tell us what are we going to talk about today?
1: So this is the scene setter for series three, so episode one, and it's going to be followed up by nine episodes as normal, talking about some of the key challenges. But what we're really doing today is setting the scene for the whole journey. So from early stage of product market fit through to real significant scale. And it's all really about building world-class SaaS businesses, and we're doing that with Jonathan Gale. Now, Jonathan, more than 20 years' experience building technology businesses, and he has to be... Started when he was 10. He started when he was 10. He was a bit of a child prodigy. He's got to be one of Europe's most... Successful repeat SaaS execs, and um, he joined a small company in Gloucestershire in 2001. That was called Message Labs, and he joined there to lead European sales. He then became head of global sales, and then uh, also head of product. And at Message Labs, he led that business through rapid sales growth from less than a million in revenue to more than 100 million dollars of annual recurring revenue in less wow. than eight, in less than eight years. Wow! Uh, before that company was acquired by Symantec, and uh, you know he played a, an absolutely transformational role at that business. In 2010, he joined New Voice Media, mm-hmm. um, and New Voice Media, another big European SaaS success story. He joined there as chief commercial officer, and then he was promoted to chief executive officer in Feb 2011. And over seven-year period, grew that business from. Less than 2 million in annual recurring revenue to more than 70 million. Wow. So, you know, you you put these in context, he's rightly recognized as one of the leading figures in European SaaS. He's an executive in residence for Notion. He's an NED and chairman to portfolio of leading SaaS companies, including a couple of companies in our portfolio. So, Jonathan, welcome and thank you very much for coming along. Thank you, Stephen. So, look, when you think back on your journey with Message Labs, from a personal perspective and, and an organizational perspective, what were the biggest challenges you faced? It's
0: always product, product, and the platform. In my view, it's always that with SaaS companies because everything revolves around it all the metrics are driven by it. More than anything else, your ability to deliver a compelling direction for the product, and then actually deliver on it in terms of hitting your roadmap targets, moving the product forward. You know, you look at problems or weaknesses in other metrics across the business, things like cost to acquire and cost to serve, or marketing spend conversion to customers. And it's very easy, I think, to get obsessed In a silo about those conversion ratios and the different things in the different processes within the business and obviously you know strong people in those different functions can make a difference massive difference but at the end of the day if your product isn't differentiated if your product isn't good if your product isn't compelling if your product isn't easy to use and remains easy to use if your product isn't easy to set customers up that's the cause of everything and then the symptoms surface in the form of good marketing or sales conversion numbers or bad marketing or sales numbers or good churn numbers or bad churn numbers or good cash performance because you've got a high gross margin and good cash efficiency or bad numbers all the roads lead back to product And i would say that you're slightly doing yourself a
1: you know a disservice because the execution of the sales organization you led at message labs was was extraordinary yes there was great product but you also drove a great machine that's a fundamental differentiator for any business isn't it yeah but that's
0: why I went off to run product at Message Labs in the end, partially because I was just constantly complaining about it. So um, finally, when there was a vacancy, they decided to hand the job to me, and partially because I knew that the job that I was doing, from an execution perspective in the sales team, was pretty consistent, was very consistent. So it didn't really vary that much. Yet the numbers went up and down, yeah, and and I could see that that was directly correlated to. How we were performing relative to the market, relative to our competitors and relative to the needs of our customers, most importantly. And when there were problems with that, you know, if the platform went through a period of instability, it wouldn't have been an issue if Message Labs had been an online expenses system or... Some other kind of non-critical business processes. But both of the big success stories I've been involved with, I mean, there's a bit you missed out in the middle where I was actually at a company called Mimecast for a, a year. Which is um, also one of the biggest. Which is also done really well. I was only there for a year, so I helped them raise their first big growth round. But other than that, obviously wasn't that involved. But again, product was core cool there. And when product was good and platform was strong, sales results are good, churn's low. If product's late, the platform's unstable. And the thing about all three of those, Message Labs, Mimecast, and New Voice Media, is they're all effectively real time communication messaging propositions. So if they fall over, if your email stops, if you can't take any phone calls, it's a problem for your customers. If your online expenses system falls over, it's an irritation. It's probably not, you know, you can be over for two or three hours. It's not the end of the world. If you're out, if you're blocking email for two or three hours, or you're, or the, you know, they've got a 600 person, contact center that's not getting any phone calls for two or three hours it's a big problem yeah so i don't know my experience i think is is more relative or related particularly to people that have that live critical business process or live communication thread to their platform because i've found with all of those companies that you're constantly balancing the need to invest in the platform and keep it stable and doing the the core thing of what it's supposed to be doing processing emails processing telephone calls and live chat messages etc with the need to bring new functions and features to bear and to innovate. And that can be a really hard balancing act. So when I say biggest challenge at Message Labs, I think they had it at Mindcast, I know they had it at New Voice Media, it's always finding the right balancing point on that, how strong is the platform doing the core role versus how innovative is and what new stuff do you bring? And, you know, when you're having a good run, when you're delivering well, when you're moving quickly, but also remaining stable, surprise, surprise, the bookings numbers better, customers are happier, churns lower, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. When you're having a bad run, all those other numbers go the same way. But the the actual quality of the salespeople, the processes you're going through, the execution, the quality of the marketing, Mm -hmm. they didn't really move around that much. And that's why, you know, when I knew I wanted to be a CEO, I pitched hard to get the product role in Message Labs because I, I felt that was for any CEO, or founder, CEO, or whatever, that, you know, the understanding that uh, the kernel at the core of what you do, even if you've got a massive expansionary and you're able to raise a gajillion pounds and, or dollars and go out acquiring customers sooner or later, you're going to have to deliver the product that you promised. So
1: how did those experiences shape your strategy or your plan at, at New Voice Media or your thinking
0: in essence? Well, I think that those experiences directly created the strategy that we ended up with. So the focus for the company was on having the best product and contact center market's pretty big, lots of distributed players doing different things in different geographies in different areas of specialization, different verticals. So we had to really focus on where we were going to be best. And it wasn't my idea to integrate with Salesforce. That was made by people before I arrived in the business, but it was my idea to basically focus exclusively on that relationship and exclusively on that integration. So we said, okay, we're going to have the best cloud contact center for Salesforce customers. And that then was the limited resources that we had. Obviously, resources grew over time, but you never have enough. That became achievable. If we just said we're going to have the best cloud contact center full stop for integration with any CRM platform in any country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera then we, we would have failed. Yeah. But we were able to, it's still a fairly big task because Salesforce is obviously quite a big company. But you know, at the time that we made that decision, Salesforce was two or 300 employees in the UK back in So it was a big bet at that point. Well, yes and no. I mean, it was clear that no one was going to buy CRM software on-premise in the long run. So we're going to go into the cloud, and Salesforce were already, in the US at least, clearly emerging as um, the market leader. What was a bet, and what was against what the analysts all advised and said, was that at the time we made the bet, Salesforce had no penetration in the contact center market. And everybody was saying that they wouldn't get in because, I don't know, a whole host of different reasons. But my sense was that, Salesforce was going to get into the contact center market. Just, you know, all the big brands that we're trying to sell to, they had their own contact centers, all moving outbound in that sales direction. or inbound service. They were going to want to provide personalization on a mass, you know, automated scale. They were going to want to leverage this investment they've made in Salesforce. They were going to want to leverage the customer data they had in Salesforce. So to me, it didn't feel like a big bet at all. It felt like um, just an l- absolutely logical thing to do. But product, so single biggest challenge and also competitive usp we we had a message labs was product because you know we were the only people that could catch viruses without a signature you yeah. know that kind of one line elevator pitch is so powerful and it's, it was the same thing you know what do you do with nba well if you've got Salesforce, we turn it into a cloud contact center and we're the best people in the world at it you it's, did also really create didn't. a sales organization or a function or a machine that people didn't want to compete with and you were really hard to compete
1: with and so I think in yeah. salesforce you
0: know message labs was a more horizontal play if you like it wasn't just for customers of another product but you still had to pick your you yeah, know there were certain places where we wouldn't play yeah you know we made it about efficacy I think we used to describe it as you know think of it as a military vehicle that If you want to drive it through a battle zone and fuel it on camel urine it might not be that comfortable and the aircon might (laughs) not work from time to time but if you want something to stop viruses yeah buy that if you want a pretty ui prettier ui or i get punched by metaphorically punched by someone from message labs you know buy this other product if you want to stop viruses buy that if you want to build a contact center and you've got salesforce buy this so the basis of any of these successful or aligned sales teams, it's, not, it's more important to get that focus around what your strategy is, in my view, and then design everything around that. Then you know, if you have an incredibly well-executing sales team, but you have a poor product and you're trying to boil the ocean and, and you have a lack of focus on what you're trying to be best at, then it doesn't matter how good the sales team is. The numbers won't be particularly inspiring. That message of focus is really interesting. And and I wonder when you reflect back on those those
1: experiences, and you've been through the sub-5 million to big scale twice, possibly also three times with some companies that went on to be category leaders. How different are those stages? And how would you think about the fundamental challenge of the kind of startup sub-5 million, get some scale, 5 to 25, and, and then get get really big and build a machine that that scales to you know 100 million plus revenue do you you think in that way do you do you see different life stages and work in different ways
0: i mean i don't know whether this question was kind of a setup but i don't fundamentally agree with it in that i don't think the challenges are any different i I think they're just a set of things that you have to do which are the same at one five 25 50 pick any any number you like 500 million and talked about it before and we'll talk about it again but assuming you've set a compelling strategy which the company is able to execute on and want to come back and talk a bit about what strategy is and what it what it isn't and specifically around not confusing objectives and constraints which is something that i think i did for a long time and then kind of figured it out and i think all the best ceos have figured out not to mix the two up so assuming assuming you've got this basis of of a good strategy which is about creating and sustaining a competitive advantage and assuming you're as a business leader able to manage all the stakeholder groups that you've got around you and that's not strategic that's just what you have to do it's the the cost of playing the game then all you've got to focus on is growing hitting your numbers so growth numbers booking numbers keeping your customers and delivering on the plan that you've written probably once a year and adjusted at a half year and talked about to your board and obviously you've got, you've got to hire and you've got to know when to bring people in. You've got to know when people have reached their limits and maybe the structure needs to change or maybe they need to leave the business or maybe other people need to come in above them and talk about kind of exec teams. I don't think there's personally any difference. Grow, hit your numbers, deliver the roadmap. Really, I didn't mention that, but got to deliver the roadmap because you'll get away with it for maybe two, three, four quarters. But then it'll, if you don't, it'll catch up and bite you in the ass.
1: So how do you interpret when a company has product market fit and is and is ready to grow,
0: um, I don't think there's one hard and fast answer to this because there's so much variation in the size of deals that companies do. I think there are some obvious characteristics or symptoms, if you like, you can look out for that product market fit has been established. One would be a stable pricing structure, so that people aren't making pricing up as they go along with each new customer. Secondly, that they've got enough customers. You know, that might be 10, it might be 100, it might be 1,000, it depends on the deal size. But most importantly, the company has to be able to demonstrate a decent and growing license base, low-churn. Customers that are old enough to have gone through their original contractual cycle and renewed, but still have low-churn. And if you strip away growth, which is fueled by investment cash, then you should be able to see an underlying model which is capitally efficient enough to drive say, north of 30 or 40% year-over-year year growth just based on the cash which the business generates itself. And I'm talking specifically about cash and not necessarily EBITDA or profit, although that would be nice. I think it's, it's more important how capital-efficient a business is as it grows. And, you know, if you've got a business that can grow, and there are some out there which can grow at 100% in terms of bookings or more on their own cash, then that's, you know, a great company to be investing in. Because that's when you can get and sustain these. But if you look at some companies that have raised a lot of money and then started to slow down or come up short or not necessarily delivered, then if you strip away the effects of the investment-fueled growth, as what's the underlying capital efficiency? So the headline growth rates, unless they're taken in conjunction with the, the cash performance of the business, can be misleading, in my view. So let's assume you're looking at the companies you're working with and
1: right, we've got, we hit those criteria, we've got the price list, we've got the customers, they're renewing, et cetera, et cetera. The next stage then is to look for repeatability. So I'm going to grow, I'm I'm VC funded now, I'm going to be growing faster, I'm going to be outstripping that 30, 40% per annum. What success factors do you look for in the business and what changes do you expect to see in the leadership teams as companies come out of product market fit and into
0: that, early stage kind of repeatable predictable revenue growth let me just start by adding one layer of qualification when we've talked about product or market fit i think i'm making an implicit assumption that the market that a company's demonstrated fit with is sufficiently large so however you define it by revenue by users by seats you know what however it's defined i think you've got to be able to demonstrate that you can build a business say turning over 50 million or 100 million but we'll still only have say half a percent or one percent or point 0.1 percent of a market if you come across a company that says okay well we can get to 50 million or 100 million but we've got to take you know 30 40 50 percent of the addressable market then to me that's just a niche solution which will will run out of steam and get lower returns on investment as it goes forward so assuming it's a big enough market as in assuming the CEO or the founder or whatever has lined it up with the right strategy against a big enough market. Then, for me, it all centres around what the CEO does or whether they're the founder or not. And the changes in the exec team, which is one of the, if you like, stakeholder groups that that CEO has to manage, and resource accordingly. So, I think when you look at CEOs, particularly founder CEOs, which I haven't been, hasten to add, I think there are two or three, three really. Co- kind of interesting areas and I think the ones that are most successful don't necessarily have all of these traits but the, I think the single most important trait really is the ability to engage all of the stakeholders around them at an emotional logical level so to do that they first of all got to be able to think clearly so strategically they've got to be strong and they've got to be able to take everybody with them whether it's their exec team whether it's their investors and their board whether it's if you like, those two are secondary, really, to customers and the rest of the company, you know, all the employees. So if the CEO can't engage those people in their gut somehow or other and attach them to a compelling strategy or Mm. point of differentiation that they can wrap their head around that they're excited about, then they're going to struggle. Then, obviously, you've got got to be able to execute, got to have a level of, you know, kind of organization and executional excellence. But I think that in early stage SaaS, when when you're growing it, It's very hard for leaders that are just very organized and, if you like, execution-orientated, but that lack that ability to Mm. define and then start to deliver on a kind of compelling future vision. I think it's possible for people to go out and hire and bring those things in. So this answer to your question, which is that the CEO, I think, has to plug the gaps around their capability. And I think it's much easier or more achievable for that CEO to plug the gaps if they're bringing in experience operational excellence execution focused people who live to get shit done who don't necessarily live to be a figurehead in the business lead lead the business lead you know so be careful obviously because if the ceo and founder if you do you really want to be competing for airtime around what's the strategy do you really want it to be a little bit unclear to the rest of the company where the future direction is coming from you know the ceo should be the custodian of the company strategy above all the vision of the company the purpose of the company and then they depending upon assuming they can do that then they just plug in the different resources at a different time i mean i'm making it sound
1: very straightforward very
0: straightforward and it's actually not unbelievably (laughs) difficult because you're always trying to hire talent that's probably two years earlier than they thought they would join a business like yours and because they're probably more risk averse and then also understanding when people have reached their limit and trying to figure out what to do with them. That clarity of the, the story, bringing everybody along with you, and then resourcing a team to execute upon it. Yeah. But the makeup of that team's going to change over time. But be clear with yourself that the vision doesn't get clouded. Yeah.
1: And you mentioned earlier about the fact actually things don't really change as, you, as the company grows. You know, there, there's priorities that the CEO has at at each individual stage. But, you know, you have been through growth phases that very few others have. So let's say your company is growing rapidly at 25 million in revs. It is capital efficient, as as you described earlier on. The machine is running smoothly. You've recruited a load of operators. What then do you see as the most important factors for success going forward?
0: Just going to keep sounding repetitive, but you've got to be lined up against a big enough market. It's highly unlikely that you're going to be in a vacuum, so the performance of your competitors relative to you. You've got to be good at go-to-market, so your sales and marketing efficiency has got to be good. That's got to be built on top of a strong product and a clear and differentiated strategy. Once you're starting to get to that scale, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be able to do everything via direct. It's not impossible, but it's harder to do it via direct-only model, so you, one would expect to see the, your partnership model and your ecosystem model developing, at the same time but this is all of this is dependent on the quality of the strategy that you set and the quality of the job that's been done to align everybody from top to bottom in the business align every aspect of the business from how the website looks to how 10 different people would talk about the company if you interviewed them separately to how the customers feel whether what the customers think is good about the company ties in and aligns with what your employees think is good about the company. It's driving that alignment with the right strategy, having the right strategy and then driving alignment with it. And that's the basis for everything. Assuming, as I said, that you've picked a big enough market that's got enough room so that you can actually build quite a significant company in absolute revenues terms whilst actually taking really a very small percentage of the overall market. If you look at a company like Salesforce, for instance, that's exactly what it's done. And there, are, you know, you look at Message Labs where it got to. You look at NVM where it got to, getting to reasonable or very big absolute numbers on relatively very small percentages of the market. Now, maybe you've divided it up like we did with Salesforce, where you want to own a piece of it. Yeah, you've made it. The, n- the numbers there might be high, but they're still relatively small. Yeah, they're
1: still single digit. I've heard you speak previously about the confusion you see people have about strategy. And the kind of fundamental challenges of how people think about that in terms of, I think you call it yeah, objectives and constraints. Do you want to just kind of elaborate on that and why you feel those things are so important
0: and possibly misunderstood? I think it's very important for business leaders, for CEOs to be clear about the fact that having happy employees that don't leave, having happy, satisfied customers that don't leave, having a happy board or set of investors that don't stop investing or go and put the money somewhere else, having happy partners that give you their best people because they're excited about the partnership rather than their worst people because they don't think the relationship's worth investing in. Having these things in place, so having, you know, high customer sat, high employee sat, that is not a strategy. Yet in a lot of company strategy docs, you'll see things like customer success or happy employees. So the thing to remember is that all stakeholders are infinitely greedy because there's so much choice, you know, a VC can choose to, and will choose to, Put some money into you, and then later on go. Actually, uh, this looks like a better thing. I'll put it in over here. An employee can go. Oh, you're quite good, but actually, the free food at lunchtime over here is a bit better. And people can make really big decisions like where to work on really small things. So, if all you're doing is focusing on managing the needs of those stakeholders, then you won't be focused on on what you need to do, which is how am I going to create a clear, sustainable, competitive advantage in the market that I want to operate in against the people that I'm going to compete against which is defined by that choice of market and just remember however good a job you happen to be doing at any given time with a set of stakeholders that's just just table stakes it's just keeping the lights on so you know if you've written out your 10 objectives for the year I don't know decrease churn to five percent increase employee sat to blah blah do you see what I mean yeah. those aren't they're not objectives they're constraints that you have to manage so you're going to have to manage those anyway just get over it mm-hmm. get over the fact yeah. Makes People a lot will of be sense. Dis- disloyal, that customers will be disloyal, that investors will be difficult and disloyal. Disloyal, maybe invest in you. Well, inconsistent probably. Yeah. Disloyal. You know, invest in you and then not, and then go again or whatever, depending on how you're doing. Just get over that. Have a plan that delivers on those, that balances the resources that you've got against the needs of those stakeholders. But then make sure that somewhere else you've got clarity around how you're going to be different now, in 12 months' time, in 24 months' time, in 36 months' time. You know which set of customers are going to buy you and why? So that's what I mean about strategic confusion. And strategy, to me, is all about that. Why are we different now and in the future? Not we do a great job having really happy customers or happy employees or happy investors.
1: Can I say why are we different and
0: how will we win? Yeah, I mean, that's how we win is built on why are you different? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And you absolutely. have to have alignment between the messaging that you present to the market and the actual reality of what happens when somebody buys your product. John, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I think we could carry
1: on with this for quite a while, but I think we've covered talk, a huge yeah. amount of ground. It's been fascinating. And I, and I always learn every time I listen to you, sir. A very, r- very a real, nice yourself, a, real a real pleasure. You know, Paul, we've got some amazing episodes to follow this. And yeah, the next one we're gonna be talking to, which will be coming out in a couple of weeks, is with Chris Totman, who'll be talking about the leadership transformation that the organizations he's worked with and, and that we invest in go through. We're then going to be talking about how do people really get their head around hiring extraordinary people. We're going to be talking about category design. We're going to be talking about revenue growth with Mark Roberge. We're going to be talking product with Gibson Biddle. We're going to be talking pricing with Chris Miller. There's, a, there's some fascinating conversations to be had, and, um, but I think this has really set the scene for us. So, Jonathan, thanks again and um, look forward
0: to the next time. Thank you. See you all next time. Bye-bye. Remember, you can find an in-depth write-up of this interview, along with the dozens and dozens we've done, on the Notion website at notion.vc under Resources. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thank you.